Hello everyone and welcome to the Lisa Burke Show. So delighted to have you with us. If you're watching us on RTL Play, if you're listening to us on Today Radio and also welcome if you're finding us through podcasts, Apple, Spotify, you can find us in so many ways. It's lovely to have you all with us and we've got a huge weekend to celebrate this weekend here in Luxembourg and of course in Britain. And just before we start, I want to say a special hello to Danan and his sister who are listening to us from America. It's lovely to have emails in from friends all over the world. And of course, that reflects the community we have here in Luxembourg, which is a very international community. Now, I have a full studio and with me today, I have Your Excellency Ambassador Fleur Thomas, British Ambassador to Luxembourg. I've got Dr. Christian Barkay, who is the principal of St. George's International School here in Luxembourg. And also Louise Benjamin, who is the outgoing president of the British Luxembourg Society. As always, I have Sasha Kyo. And on top of everything else, I have Professor Marcus Hesse, who is going to talk to us uh, again about the housing market, but in a slightly different way. So a packed show as ever. Sasha, we're going to start with you in a little reflection of the week's news. How are you? I'm very well. And I think uh, probably I, I would normally talk about the coronation um, tomorrow, but I think we can leave that. We can put guests. that to the side just put for five minutes. Side, which is quite nice. We've spent quite a lot of time during the week actually talking about um, it's usually the, the interesting parts of the ceremony that really uh, we've been talking about. Yeah. So from throwing a gauntlet that it really yes. is and the fact that there is still a man in armour who's going to be doing it. So it's all quite exciting. You know, these sort of details are, are making people very interested, I think, in the ceremony. So they are. But I'll leave the rest for... We, we will pause. I was just on that point, though, I have been, you know, Googling all of the various little history tidbits and everything, because yes. it is really, really interesting. But yeah, you're right. For we'll, history we'll... nerds, it's it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, the, this sword, for example, the, the age of it, and it's just a, uh, I mean, it doesn't look great <laughs> anymore after uh, that over a thousand years, does it? But uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating. It's, it's been carried by very interesting people. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> we'll park that for one moment yes. and we'll move on to other stories. Um, well, we have to start with a Luxembourg-focused story and a very important one, the Ministry of Health. There have been a few articles about this this week. Yeah, there have been. I mean, it's it's come in for some criticism. Mm. Um, I don't know how much this is, you know, in the run-up to the elections, the knives are coming out. Um, you know, our health minister, Paulette Leonard, was, is the one of the most popular um, politicians in the country, you know, according due, to previous polls. Due to COVID, etc. Um, yes, exactly, in the management of COVID. But now, um, I mean, the criticism seems to be be centred around certain issues, one of which is that uh, the health ministry want to digitalise the reimbursements. Um, so we in here in Luxembourg, we, we pay to go to the doctor and then get it reimbursed by the uh, insurance, the national insurance company. And um, this is supposed to be uh, digitalised and, uh, and to be become a faster process. Um, I, I fully agree. I think it's ridiculous <laughs> that we're wasting so much paper and people's time. But I should be impartial, well, but I can't be impartial on that. It's just environmentally unfriendly. But it seems to be more complicated than just, uh, you know, doing it digitally. It really? seems to be taking a long time. And the other thing that is very controversial is that waiting times are increasing for certain things in particular for MRI scans. Yeah. Um, there's this new centre in Potashberg, which um, was was operating privately and it's been a bit controversial because it's now operating under the National Hospital. And, you know, in theory, waiting time should be reduced to get MRI scans or mammograms, for example. And there have been quite a lot of stories about uh, women having to wait 
a long time mm. to get a, a, an emergency mammogram. I mean, I think these these are issues that are in every country, um, but maybe may more surprising in a country like Luxembourg, where we're not used to having to wait for specialist uh, doctor's appointments, for example. And as I say, it's election year, so... Um, All of the stories are coming out. They are. When it comes to MRI and mammograms, I know uh, from personal experience, actually, that there was already a delay because of COVID. And so any extra help in that capacity for women, and it's so important, um, it's, it's really necessary to have these machines open. And as you also mentioned, normally medical care here in Luxembourg is excellent and very quick. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's move on to a different story. Um, it's it's still slightly political. It's new developments regarding harassment at work and also the home office for cross-border workers. So two different stories here, but both regarding the workplace. Yes, so a new bill was passed this this uh, week um, and it basically defines co- uh, harassment, what, what exactly constitutes harassment at work. Um, so it, it did that and it's making it absolutely... Um, obligatory that once once harassment has been reported in the workplace that it is then taken further so i think this maybe in before was uh, a bit of a gray area and exactly what constitutes harassment so i mean there's not just the obvious thing so um Probably, I, I imagine uh, the lawyer next to me. I was me looking is at Louise. I was looking at Louise, <laughs> and I describing. yeah. <laughs> well, we won't we won't throw you on the microphone just <laughs> as you take a sip of water. But I, you know, when it comes to law, the one thing, and I was at a law event yesterday. Words really matter. Yes. They matter so much, and you start thinking about words in a completely different way to translators. It's just every single word matters. Yes, and mm. and it is it's a sort of the systematic harassment that is particularly in the spotlight, and also that alleged harassers and employers who um, don't respond to it, they will be fined immediately. So that that is new. They will be fi- You know, there will be sanctions introduced straight away. So that's new. And then on the other hand, we have this um, the the which has been an ongoing issue for cross-border workers yeah. um, and how much uh, time they can spend working from home. So uh, you know, they, they were unable to spend as much time as people resident in Luxembourg. Which is incredibly ironic and yes, sad because they've them. got the long travel. Yeah. So uh, this, this particular law applies to French cross-border workers and their home office days have gone up from 29 to 34 uh, in a year. So And they enabling them still to pay tax in Luxembourg and not in France, because that was the tipping point that if they spent too much time working um, at home tax. in France, <laughs> they would have to pay tax in France. Uh, yeah. a different issue. What about Belgium and Germany? Um, I think the German one was higher already than 29, but I actually I don't remember. I don't have the exact figures in my head, I'm afraid. No, no, I'm not going to no, ask no, Louise no. the lawyer. No, no, because this is not your area, Louise. Don't worry, I'm not going to throw you in it. Um, now, uh, this is another old story, but we've got some sort of resolution on it now. It's the the story of the ex-Audi CEO. Yes, Dieselgate. Yes, this is Dieselgate. a very old story, yeah. and um, I'm sure most people are aware of it. But this was uh, the Volkswagen Group, mm. um, and it was uh, back in um, ooh, uh, 2015, that's it. So it included Porsche, Audi, Skoda and Seat, and they had installed software to rig emissions. Um and I can't believe they did. I mean, I really can't believe they did that because there would have been a group of people knowing this. Yes, 
<laughs> they were putting them in the cars, weren't they? And it would appear that the CEOs also knew of it because mm-hmm. this Audi boss, uh, Rupert uh, Stadler, uh, will be the first CEO to plead guilty. And this is a really big deal because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, before people have said uh, that they, they were not necessarily aware of what was going on and the Volkswagen chief um, was, was not um, arrested or anything like that. He was actually uh, released on, with, on, on grounds of ill health. Um, but obviously, I mean, for Volkswagen at the time, I mean, they had to um, pay huge amounts of money in the States. Um, but, it, you know, it hasn't brought them down. I think there are still plenty of cars being sold. Mm. Um, but it's it's a big deal that he's going to make a, a confession in two weeks time mm. um, and then see what happens from there. Well, it is a big deal because as a CEO of any company, one would hope that you have a certain set of values yeah, (laughs) and one of them being honesty to some degree at least well a high degree I would hope but here we go yes no so he he will put guilty to fraud so Mm. yeah well we'll keep an eye out that will be an ongoing news story as it has been for a number of years now we're going to move to journalism oh yes it was uh, you know this week was World Press Freedom Day and, um, you know, as ever, uh, it's it's an opportunity maybe to sort of mark certain issues. Um, one of the big issues is that journalism is still a very dangerous profession for many, many people. And, uh, uh, you know, the UN chief, Antonio Guterres, did uh, remind us about Evan Gershevic, who's the Wall Street journalist who is currently imprisoned in Russia. And, uh, you know, as an example of many journalists who are facing, um, you know, a lot of danger. Um but also then the, um, you know, AI. journalism is being battered by propaganda and yeah. AI in particular. So, the, it, you know, it's also an opportunity to look at that. And sorry, thirdly, Luxembourg, very interestingly, comes in place number 20 only for sort of free reporting. And I thought that was quite low. So I had a little look, you know, why why was it kind of uh, only at number 20? And of course, it's maybe a bit unfairly because it is a small country and there aren't that many outlets, basically. So, um, you know, television-wise, obviously, there is only RTL. <laughs> um, so maybe there isn't the that's same... Luxembourgish, so it's yes, exactly. available to everybody who lives here. The, you know, there, there can't be the same kind of balance and the, it is the amount of media outlets here. Um, you know, they're very small, but they said, you know, the media outlets are quite cosy with the government. That's That was one of their criticisms. I think that would be a very interesting read. Yes, it is a very interesting read. I'm trying to be very diplomatic. I can hear <laughs> I can hear that in your voice. I, <laughs> I think one of the other aspects of living in Luxembourg um, as a journalist in any form is it is, as you said, a very small country and it's quite hard to be investigative in that capacity because ultimately somebody is likely to be related to somebody else. So one has to keep good relationships with other people as well. It's like a very large family. Yes, yes. Which makes it such a lovely place to live. Exactly, exactly. Moving on to Zelensky. He's been not too far away. He was in The Hague this week. Yes, sir, that was an unannounced um, visit, as they, they always are. But of course, it came um, you know, after the day that uh, the Kremlin accused Ukraine of um, sending drone, uh, sending drones, sorry, attack, to attack the Kremlin. Um, and we, we still don't know uh, whether this was a false flag or whether, you know, 
whether Ukraine was. I mean, the Ukraine for sure wouldn't admit it, would they? Um, and uh, Zelensky, interestingly, visited the Netherlands and went to the international court at the Hague, in the Hague, rather. Mm. Um, you know, he is really pushing for the fact that, that Russia are brought, or the leaders, rather, uh, well, in fact, only one leader probably, <laughs> uh, no, but uh, Foreign Secretary uh, Lavrov and President Putin will be brought at some point in front of the International Tribunal. He really has the stamina of an ox, that man. I mean, how you keep going day after day after day and... Amazing, yes. Yeah, yes. yes. Leaving everything else that's going on there for another conversation. Yes, we yes. have it regularly. A, a terrible story coming out of Belgrade. Really, really awful. Uh, you know, two stories because there was this school shooting on Wednesday, mm. and it was a teenager, a thirteen-year-old teenager, who uh, shot dead eight classmates and a security guard in Belgrade. And then two days later, there's another shooting as um, in you know in a moving car, and this um, shooter managed also to kill eight people. Um, I, I understand recently that he's just been um, caught, um, but. You know, I, I don't know, the words don't really describe and I certainly no reasons um, that I would know why this has happened, you know, twice in two days. It's absolutely extraordinary and really sad for a country like Serbia. Sad. It hasn't happened in 30 years. Incredibly sad and, and obviously prayers and thoughts to all of the families of those poor children. And yes. Everybody involved. Um, final story. Is Luxembourg really one of the most dangerous places to live? It was a, it's a, a, de- a headline, <laughs> it's a headline. Uh, which has which has um, got many many readers on RTL today. You know, it's got huge amounts of clicks. Um, basically, this was a question that was placed in Parliament on Wednesday by a far right, uh, the ADR uh, politician, um, who read out a story about how a man was stabbed in the stomach after being attacked by a group of twenty men in in Luxembourg. Well, I mean. I know crime has gone up in in Luxembourg in the last few years, and um, particularly you know last last year the figures went up twenty seven percent compared to twenty twenty one. But I really don't think it's the most dangerous. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't want to make opinions here, but uh, it certainly still feels a relatively safe country to live in. And this is yes, I mean, it's populism, isn't it, and and stoking fear. Yeah, it does feel like a safe place to live compared to other places we have lived. Um, But of course, the other point of this story, something that I'm always questioning is statistics, 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 you know, they can be warped in all sorts of ways. So what is it that they regard as crime, etc.? What is being uh, analysed there? Well, yes, exactly. It's burglaries. It's very, um, I mean, obviously there are other crimes happening. But I always think, remember when I first moved to Luxembourg and I thought it was a really dangerous place to drive. I was like, oh. Once you start driving on Luxembourg's roads, I mean, you'll be lucky because, of course, traffic accidents are reported. So that's the difference. It's not, I think, that there are more accidents here than anywhere else. So, there, as you say, there is sometimes statistics tenden- and what's reported. That's true. But on that point, there perhaps has been a tendency for some drink driving, especially on the country roads. <laughs> but <clears throat> that's another story entirely. Sasha, as always, thank you so much. It's and I pleasure. know you might partake of the next part of this uh, show. So thank Thanks, you, Lisa. Sasha. Mm-hmm. 
Now moving to the next part of the show, it is of course a conversation about the coronation of King Charles III. With me, as already mentioned in the studio, Your Excellency Ambassador Fleur Thomas, British Ambassador to Luxembourg. I also have Dr. Christian Barkay, Principal of St. George's School, and Louise Benjamin, who is the outgoing President of the British Luxembourg Society. So welcome to you all. I'm sure you're very, very busy, but I'm going to start with you, Ambassador, because I know even this morning you've had an outing. Indeed, yes. I had the great honour to be at the airport for the departure of their Royal Highnesses, the Grand Duke and Grand Duchess, as they uh, left for um, London for the coronation. had the opportunity to share some words with them and to talk to them um, about... uh, what was going to happen and what to expect, um, including the fact that people have been camping out for days already. So there's, a, I said, it's a hyped up level of hyped upness in the UK right now <laughs> for being royal, um, and that they would uh, uh, have a, a particular part in the ceremony where they enter with uh, with other foreign royal families. And uh, I also spoke to them about the event that we're actually going to be holding in Luxembourg. Um, at uh, St George's School with all the British organisations who've come together um, to celebrate together. Yes, well, uh, Christian, uh, it's at your school, of course. It will be held at St George's. So for those who may be listening abroad, tell us firstly about St George's. Well, thank you, Lisa. And uh, we're really privileged to be able to host such a prestigious event. It's really an honour for us. And uh, to be able to bring all the British community, the, the Commonwealth community as well in Luxembourg and further afield together tomorrow. Um, St George's really is an international school. It has a a British background, but uh, we actually have 63 different nationalities of students in the school. And at the moment, I think I have 863 students enrolled. And uh, I actually met a family this morning who were about to sort of embark on that educational journey with us as well. So they were about to go in for their testing and their their trial days. So That was actually a really nice uh, moment for me in the morning. Um, But yes, we're very excited to be able to host the event. We have 700 people signed up. Um, We have all kinds of stalls arranged. All the different uh, British communities and societies in Luxembourg have joined in as well with a a great deal of uh, goodwill and enthusiasm. And uh, let's fingers crossed for good weather. Indeed. And uh, we'll just see how we get on. Well, uh, even if there are a few showers, I'm sure brollies will be on hand as well. It's a very British thing. Louise, as the outgoing president of the British Luxembourg Society, firstly, a few words on that society. Thank you, Lisa. So the British Luxembourg Society is a historic society. It's been around since 1947, one of the oldest clubs in Luxembourg. And we have 40% Luxembourg members, 40% British members and 20% international members. So there are also many people who are interested in the relations between the UK and Luxembourg. And we are very inclusive. We're open to all types of people. So you're all very welcome to join us. And you'll be there present tomorrow as we, well. We, we, we are delighted to be part of this historic and magnificent event, which is being hosted by St George's School and um, organised by the British Embassy. And our members are counting amongst their 700. And I know that there's now a rush for tickets. I, I'm sure there, there, there is. There are none left. They're sold out. <laughs> so if you have any that you're not using, <laughs> no, let us Sorry. Know. No, I don't. But uh, Ambassador, for you, uh, tell our listeners and our viewers on RTL Play a little bit about what this means for Britain and a little bit of the history of perhaps uh, King Charles as he is now. 
Sure. I mean, I think the coronation will reflect the monarch's role today and look forward towards the future, whilst we'll see many historical features at the same time, which I know you've already covered this week. I heard some of that um, earlier this week. Uh, so it's rooted in tradition, but also reflecting the modern multicultural country that the UK is. Um, so particular things for me, Floella Benjamin, who I watched in play school as a child, is going to be um, participating in that service. So for me, that's a really um, wonderful representation of, of how important the multicultural cultural society is within the UK. But the Abbey has been the, the coronation church since 1066, and King Charles III will be the 40th monarch to, to swear the traditional oath of faithful service. But I think we've already seen that he, as a monarch, he will not shy away from tough issues. In March in Berlin, we heard him speaking of the unprovoked invasion of Ukraine and how that had inflicted the most imaginable suffering on so many innocent people. So he's not afraid to shy away from those issues. But I think we all know what his passions are in terms of youth, community, diversity, and obviously sustainability. Mm. In many ways, he's been ahead of his time with the the, the kind of movement of uh, uh, caring of the environment. And uh, I've had the honour to visit his home in, in Highgrove and see those gardens that he has cared for and planted. Um, and it's really quite astonishing. He has the most beautiful meadows um, mm. around the house. It's really something very special. What an honour to, yes, to visit those gardens. Yeah. I was reading just this morning, in fact, that Whenever he is opening an event and often they plant a tree, he shakes a branch of the tree to wish it well on its journey in life. I thought that was so nice and so of him. And you're right. You know, I can remember back where people would almost laugh at what he would say about the environment. But now it's all come to pass and come true. So he really was ahead of his time. And I think a lot of us reflecting on his life, he has a very sensitive side to him and uh, and, and very deeply sensitive as well. So what is the the word uh, about Camilla, are we allowed to, to ask uh, the feeling about uh, Queen Consort Camilla? I think it's been hugely positive. Yeah. Um, I think she has she has um, spent an awful, an awful lot of years now mm. uh, undertaking dutiful service alongside um, His Majesty. Um, and she will be sworn in alongside her husband. Mm -hmm. I also read, actually, that uh, along with all of the environment things, she uh, makes her own honey at, at one of their homes, in fact, as well. So they, they have, a, I think, a very happy uh, home life together. It sounds so lovely, making honey, planting trees and, and caring about lots of different environmental issues. Will any of this be shown tomorrow at the school, Christian? You know, at your school, will you have evidence of some of his, the things he cares about? Well, we, we certainly have the, the, the actual event being live streamed, both in the auditorium and outside on a sort of weatherproof screen, because Luxembourgish weather is obviously, unfortunately, slightly unpredictable, even in May. And uh, we have different stalls from the different organisations that will reflect some of his particular interests. Yes, certainly. Mm -hmm. And it's sustainable because there's no parking. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you have to go by bicycle or bus. That's very good to know, Louise. And I'm also curious what food will be on offer. Fish and chips. Fish we'll and chips. We have a, a Luxembourgish uh, burger van. Well, we actually have two burger vans because I think once we realised how popular the event was, we actually had to bring in additional supplies. Um, but we also have traditional British fare as well on offer. What about afternoon tea? Any it afternoon tea? There will be cakes. There's certainly cakes from the British Ladies Club. Of course, there will be Which cakes. one would imagine they, they will be spectacular, I'm sure. Is, is it late enough in the year to open the pims? 
Will there be pims on offer? Or is that allowed on school grounds? Oh, I think so. I'm very grateful for the fish and chip man because he helped the British Luxembourg Society a year ago and he provided up to 200 free fish, fish and chips for Ukrainians when they arrived on a bus one morning. That's so we really need to support story. him tomorrow to thank right. him. So I just ask, what about the quiche? Oh, the coronation No quiche. one like, making a quiche. Well, yes. It's not easy to get hold of those special beans, what do you call them, the broad beans. Yes. The beans are not so easy to find here. No, That's true, actually. Ones, yes. Yeah, I've, I, well, I haven't attempted to make that coronation quiche yet, but I'm sure over in the UK there'll be all sorts there. Do you know of any people who are going over, your friends or family members who are going over this weekend to the UK to celebrate and see this piece of history? I know lots of people in the UK who are going to be there. Yes, um, of course. Sure. Yeah. Um, which is, yeah. you know wonderful and I'm sure I'll see lots of exciting photos. Yeah. Is there anything in particular you're looking forward to as a representative here for the British Embassy? I think because when you watch something like this and you're part of that kind of machinery of government in a way, you'll see people you know. Mm. And there's nothing more exciting than seeing people you know. Like, oh, we're all like that, really. You know, um, people watching will be interesting. I'm also um, fascinated with, I think you've mentioned already, some of the ancient rituals, but I think also the personal touches. So um, at the ceremony, there'll be songs in English and Welsh. There'll be a gospel choir and Greek Orthodox music in memory of Prince Philip, who'd been born, of course, in Corfu. So I think there's some really lovely personal touches, which for me, I think that's something really lovely to see. Um, in uh, in Luxembourg here, I'm particularly keen to, we have two um, uh, Commonwealth countries who are represented besides the UK, um, which is Ghana and Pakistan. And I believe that the Ghanaians have got some food items. So I think that's going to be exciting. Oh, that, that, that sounds like it might be a little bit spicy. Yeah, I think. Oh, yeah, because we haven't actually mentioned much about the Commonwealth countries. But in fact, they will probably also be having very large celebrations themselves. Yes, they will. And, and many of my colleagues across the world have got similar parties to ours. Of course, it doesn't quite work for all time zones. And I think some people will be um, recording and playing later. Or, um, but uh, you know, there, there are definitely lots of parties going on, lots of cakes and uh, <laughs> lots of big celebrations. Across the community. Yeah, for sure. yeah, great time to celebrate. Sasha? Can I just say, I'm so happy that you're organising this because I, um, I'm, I'm, I'm signed up, I'm coming. Um, but also it's, it's one of those things that's a bit sad to watch on your own. I kind of thought, oh, well, we just watch Turn the Telly on at home and... Yeah, so it's it's really fun to make it a kind of a big party as well. I know. I I have, um, you know, I, I might try and make both. It's also, I don't know if you know this, uh, it's Summer Space Festival tomorrow in Luxembourg, in, in Neumünster. So um, we will have some people looking at the Jedi sword saber fighting and then we will have others eating cake at the... Yeah. And, and, and swearing allegiance to the king. Yes. Because oh, yes. be, everybody will be asked to swear it out loud. Ah, so we will, will you have that on tape, in fact, the students who will be present and others present? Will you record this? We, we certainly can. Um, I think one of, the, one of the real opportunities we have is for so many people to come together for so many different nationalities and backgrounds. Um, and I certainly had uh, one of my parents this morning said, well, you know, it's really late minute, but could you get me a ticket? And I said, <laughs> I'm really sorry, but uh, no. Yeah. But I just wanted to point out, actually, just a, a just a quick point again on in terms of logistics, um, that there is absolutely no parking at the school, and the reason for that is that uh, I'm currently building a new gym on my parking. So please use public transport. Follow the king's example. Use your bicycle or the bus or the uh, train service and uh, please have a wonderful day. Well, actually, you're also wearing a lovely tie. Is there any significance in this tie? 
Uh, well, it's, it's just my club tie from London, so I'm an overseas member of one of the British clubs, but uh, actually that club is, is full at the moment because all the members have congregated to London, and I think I looked about three or four months ago because I, th- I thought I was going to be in London for this weekend, and it, they'd already uh, everything was booked up. Oh, and Louise, I must also add, you're looking very, very festive. Yes, you have all of the colours ticked off there. I'm not quite, no, I'm not quite. I have the colours, but in a floral arrangement. very British also. It's also very representative of the invitation for the coronation, actually, your shirt. Um, Because for those listening, um, she's wearing a very floral, um, I think, spring flowers and summer flowers. And the the, uh, coronation invitation, reflecting the interests of His Majesty the King, actually has a lot of flowers on it and the green man, which some of you will be familiar with from folklore. So you're you're doing your part, Lisa. Oh, that's so lovely. I had no idea. Well, that's uh, serendipitous, let's say. Any final comments on this wonderful occasion that will take place tomorrow? I think that the history is, is fascinating because there's all the regalia which and the memorabilia and things. And, and, and a lot of the regalia comes from Victorian ages or from Charles I, I think. But the actual history of anointing kings goes back 3,000 years. So I think it's really interesting to have a quick Google and find a podcast, one of the BBC podcasts, and, and learn about the history. It's fascinating. It really is. And as you said, Sasha, as well, so many parts. The more you understand about what's happening, yes. the more interesting it becomes, in fact, because you can look at something and think, ah, OK, that becomes here. This was worn by a certain person at that particular yes. moment in time. And, and, and then there's yeah. the anointing of the, the oil, oil, which is uh, part of it comes from Jerusalem and Bethlehem, two different places. And one of the olive groves is where Princess Alice, so um, the, his great grandfather, his grandfather, Charles's grandfather, was um, is buried. Yeah. So yeah. there's a link there, and of course Princess Alice, she saved um, Jewish people during the war. So there's so there's also there's a Jewish connection there. So, and but I think just going back three thousand years, all the kings over the years have been anointed in special ceremonies and queens. Yes. And queens. <laughs> <laughs> but do we don't see that, if, if I understand correctly, that will not be Sacred, televised. Yes. Yeah. Right. There is a special screen that's been um, embroidered rather beautifully, I think, by the Royal School of, of Needlework, I think yes. it is. Um, and, uh, and it has all the Commonwealth represented on that screen. Um, and at the very bottom is the at the bottom. So essentially, as a servant to the Commonwealth, is, is uh, um, King Charles's uh, cipher. Well, that is really, it is a moment in our lifetime, in our history. I don't know if we'll get the chance to see another coronation, but let's try to all enjoy this weekend, whatever we think and our own ideas might be about various things. It's a moment of celebration and enjoyment uh, for everything that is British, including the fish and chips. <laughs> I think that's right. But I think we also need to remember it's also quite a um, significant religious service for the Anglican Church. And the Anglican Church are joining us tomorrow. So some of them will probably wish to watch it in the, in the auditorium because for them it's a very solemn religious occasion. Well, we should probably explain that further, in fact, for people who might not understand why, because he also becomes, of course, the head of the Anglican Church. That's right. Yes. And. And so, again, with the Queen, we saw a great example in that and the the head of state. Thank you all so much for your time and for coming in. I know that you've got a very busy few days ahead of you, not least tomorrow, but the aftermath, I'm quite sure, will will take a while to uh, undo as well. Thank you all so much. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you.
And now let me introduce to you Professor Marcus Hesse, who is Professor of Urban Studies at the University of Luxembourg since 2008 in the Department of Geography and Spatial Planning with a specific interest in the science policy interface. Well, it's lovely to have you here, Marcus. I know uh, you've Thanks been... For the You've been uh, on my books for a while and of course we've had some of your friends and uh, colleagues that you know in Lyser on the show to talk about the housing situation in Luxembourg. So with you, uh, we're going to think about the housing in a, in a very different context. First of all, place Luxembourg as a country. It's small, but it is international as we've just spoken about here. Yeah, I think the first, uh, when when thinking about the problem, we try to understand what's the context, what's the history, where does it come from, how did it emerge, and indeed this context uh, is about size in the first instance, and then the historical development trajectory, and uh, how did this uh, develop, and uh, what brought the today's actual problems to the fore. And it's important to understand that before then going for what could ever um, be coined a strategy or solutions. And and at the university, tell us a little bit about uh, how you think about this with your students and your own research. Yeah, we do teaching in uh, Master of Geography and Spatial Planning. And we also run a continuous uh, formation pro um, program for professional planners who come to us once a week and are getting a certificate so that they are allowed to work in, in certain functions. And uh, we do doctoral education mm -hmm. and we do our own research, which is uh, generously funded by the Front National de la Recherche of the Luxembourg government and by other sources. Yeah, yeah. That's what we do. And we try to get um, more understanding, better evidence and also a critical reflection of what's going on in the country. Yes. When it comes to the housing situation in Luxembourg, it's a constant news story here and, and one of great pain to so many people, especially people who've come in recent years because we've seen the prices double in about a decade, roughly. Uh, there was even an article this week saying that the European Central Bank said that Luxembourg's residential property market is overvalued by 61%. Have you any thoughts on this? I'm not an expert in the very detail of this issue, but of course, it's uh, in the first instance, it's like what we discussed before with crime. So one thing is the actual development and one thing is the perception as a problem and how it is then be uh, resolved or try to do so. And um, the, the current crisis is something that is on its way for quite a while. And it's quite strongly linked to the history, to the recent development trajectories, to Luxembourg being small but global. And also one has to add that there is um, real estate, land and housing as a commodity mm -hmm. that is subject to um, value creation and speculation. Yeah. So these issues come into play as well and that's, that's quite important to reflect. I want to then move on to something that's very important to you, which is the services-led urbanization, which leads to this new spatial revolution. So this is something that you work on. What do you mean by a new spatial revolution? Well, the country has um, doubled its population by 40 years. And at the same time, uh, GDP has increased by factor seven. And the labor market has increased. And uh, that leads to... Um, 
an exploding demand for space, particularly for office space mm -hmm. and for buildings. And for residential too. And for residential in that relation too. And what we observed roughly 100 years plus ago was that the industry was quite powerful in developing and the governments had difficulties to catch up with that sort of development speed and, and magnitude. And we actually observe the same right now, that we have a flourishing services industry with this quite strongly in its demand for arterials, for office space, for services around. But and you're suggesting is, that nothing was learned from last time round. Uh, it's difficult to learn. And uh, it, this metal has, this coin has two sides, obviously. So there is a stunning story of um, reinventing the country's econ economy for quite some time, again and again. And the shadow side is, of course, that it is extremely difficult to cope with these challenges, to satisfy that demand in due course. It's, it's virtually impossible. You're an observer and a researcher of all of yeah. this and all of the change, but I'm sure through that research you've come up with your own ideas about what could help the situation. So can you share those with us? Um, we, we are trying to make the connection between this uh, development, between the history, the recent development trajectories, particularly also the political economy, so that the services industry is driving the demand for territory and the demand for planning, and that this needs to be reflected when looking at strategies, solutions, and not to isolate the whole idea of let's build a new quarter, let's let's invent the, the, the urban district anew, before thinking about what's the driver behind the problem. And we try to link these different aspects, but it's not that easy. Mm -hmm. And another part of this is, as you put it, the extroverted economy, as you've described in some words, and the introverted governance. That's what we had with uh, press freedom and transparency before. It's a very small country. Everybody knows everybody. It's not that everybody talks to everybody. But it's a very specific way of dealing with these issues. And there's also some um, uh, specific hiring policies in the public sector, as we know. And um, it's a clever way of governing issues, which is contradicting the whole openness of the economy that is for about 100 years uh, very internationally oriented. And yeah, sometimes the question is, should not also the, the modes of the modus operandi of the governance, should that not also be more international, more open, rather than being confined to a very specific group of people? So just to open up what you're saying very diplomatically, if I may, I, I think you In the you're presence of the ambassador, I'm trying to be even more diplomatic as uh, I'm asked to be otherwise. Well, we, we just need to talk about things in a friendly manner. <laughs> Nobody's taking out a, a thousand-year sword here or anything. Um, but, but I think you're, you're, you're saying, in effect, that we have a government and a civil service that is very much of Luxembourg and it doesn't always reflect the very global international community that lives here and serves here and serves incredibly well the economy of Luxembourg. Well, it's a legal framework that is um, at work in, in every other country, if you want, and also in the neighbour countries. Um, the municipal part is about the, the local planning and building decision-making while the state is providing framework conditions and the overall things. And um, that is, in the first instance, um, legally 
confined to be a national thing, but um, as soon as it gets uh, beyond the borders, we discussed this idea of taxing, mm -hmm. taxation of homework, then it gets international, then it gets even more difficult. You should actually uh, imagine uh, the country as one big city mm -hmm. and then also the greater region as one agglomeration that would require in order to get done with these problems as one body. But this is um, almost impossible to imagine in an international context. You've been working here in Luxembourg as a professor at the university uh, since 2008. And in that time, there has been immense change in the landscape of Luxembourg. Talk us through some of the large-scale urban projects that you've observed. Well, one of my hobbies is uh, following the, the Kirchberg yes, development. Yes, and which is before really we began, stunning. you have yes, asked to get to the top of this building, which is a very high one, to take some photos. I've never been in this building before, so this is Oh, you're very welcome. This we will get you to the top and, of the building. Uh, yeah, Kirchberg was the very first of the very big projects in the country. And uh, it's also not very special because of this whole urban layout, but it also because it laid the ground for getting other projects in a more or less comparable vein uh, done, like uh, Belval, where our university is sitting, and in the where well, maybe others as well. So there's a specific type of dealing with these issues that also brings the state and the municipalities and the private corporations very close together. And Kirchberg, I remember from speaking to a minister before, is one of the few land areas that is owned by the government. Yes. And therefore, they can also put up social housing here, which is another uh, bone of contention for many That's people. That's a proper explanation for the housing, recent housing boom, if you want, on Kirchberg, mainly because it's under control of the government. Yeah. Yeah. And when it comes to social housing, do you think there's enough of that on offer in Luxembourg? Mm. Probably not, but this is not a provocation, but it's an observation that is shared by many. But it's if you have um, such a striking economic development with the services industries and so much pressure on providing offices, then um, it's very difficult to get into the housing market. And if it's if it's also different from the neighbor countries, if it's so privately organized by culture, if you want, then it's extremely difficult to change that path. So mm. we are actually on the route to um, getting the issue even worse. Oh, that's terribly pessimistic. Uh, I'm trying to be realistic and uh, maybe I left the, the course of diplomacy for a second, but um, no, 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 you all, don't the need to be all the predictions that we have about population development and labor market development in the next 15 to 20 years are quite risky because we don't know about the changing market um, conditions, but um, it's... Um, it's very difficult to believe that this could be resolved under under the current uh, framework conditions. What can fix that? I don't know. I may become rich if I would know about that. But it's uh, if if the country is fostering for the for the current development path, it's really difficult, and it's also extremely difficult to steer. Okay, that is a very diplomatic answer. I want to go back to the, the article, uh, the news from the European Central Bank earlier this week, where it suggests that the residential property market is overvalued by about 61%. Uh, this is uh, incredibly important because it puts people at risk of negative equity. Do you think uh, that observation is true? I'm not an expert in this very detail, but I have no reason to doubt about that. 
and if it was the case, um, again, that puts us, steers us into very, very murky waters. Yes, definitely. You know, you should become a politician. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, from very early on, I decided not to do that. But as as uh, scientists, we are trying to stick more to the real subject matter. And but we are trained and and asked to be rather clear. You're you're that. very clear. Yeah. I I do like some personal ideas too, though, thrown in just for a little bit of magic. Now, here, let's let's try this one: the politics of imagination. This is something that you like. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm observing not only the. Um, the established projects like Cashback that is in the making for 60 years now, but also the more recent developments. And I have noted that when when planners and government people are selling these projects to the public, they, they provide hope. So yeah. we know that things have been very difficult recently and in the past, but the new things will solve our mess. <laughs> and this, is, this has been... Um, the message accompanied to Belval, and this is also the message that is now brought to the people with other new projects. And uh, there's a certain idea of imagination that things will become green and cozy and nice, but they have to live and to be realized under the same very hard political economic framework conditions as the older projects. So there's a lot of imagination in there, yes. Right. I don't think if you were a politician, you would be giving us hope. Um, I have a colleague who has already been written about spatial planning that it could also be considered a technology of hope. Um, I'm a bit more, slightly more critical of that. But of course, uh, the question is, what could be a suitable strategy? That's, that's still an open question. Well, let's turn it to you then. What is a suitable strategy? I as I mentioned, um, what I observe is a number of illusions that are currently on the market about how to master growth and how to steer development and how to, in the very end, to make that all sustainable. And there's that's a multiple illusion game. But and your area of uh, your your urban studies area at the University of Luxembourg, it has an absolute focus on spatial planning. And you're looking at Luxembourg. So let's think about that. I mean, Belleville, it seems, has been a success story. That depends on whom you ask. I'm asking to be, you. To be uh, polite. Um, even even politicians and also part of the planners have had their issue with it uh, in the aftermath, which is quite fair because you make um, make experience afterwards and then you may reevaluate these projects. I think one of the big problems is the oversupply of offices. That's pretty clear. And... Telework, as we discussed before, would be an option if there wouldn't be the tax borders, which make the whole thing really complicated. So uh, getting getting out of this oversupply of offices and having more housing, maybe having also more other associations, institutions, rather than the market only to provide that. And maybe also the municipalities doing um, um, a more elegant job in um, providing strategy and in 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 really getting really uh, mixed um, quarters to the fore. Mm -hmm. It's very much pushing the envelope for the products that are currently on the market, and there's some doubt whether this will solve the problems. And when it comes to spatial planning, another very important factor, I think, is transport, public transport. What do you think about linking that up more effectively, particularly with the north of Luxembourg? Well, in overall term, I, terms, I guess, um, 
there has been a lot improved in recent times over the last decade. Things have gotten better, but partly also they are in the same situation as uh, the land issue because it's under the pressure of development and um, an expanding labor market. So if you have some little tiny facilities of um, park and ride and other issues constructed, then uh, you you just have to to count what is being added to the in influx of commuters per year. And then you see, okay, that sort of infrastructure is um, limited because the whole development trajectory is based on inequality and imbalanced. And Explain that key, out. Please. That's a key problem. People have to live outside of the country and the workplace is in the country, Because in the capital city, the is cost. on cashback. We are here with a working population of 42,000 at the moment. It's going to be 60,000 within the by the end of this decade. And you see a lot of construction that gives proof to that expectation. So how to master that in a way that it works? I don't know. Well, if the professor of the area of urban studies at the University of Luxembourg doesn't know, what hope have we got for the politicians? Um, maybe, maybe speak, maybe interact, maybe listen and um, get on the way for, for a joint reasoning about these issues. Do you think there should be continual growth in the country? Um, yeah, well, we have this debate for a decade now about uh, qualitative growth and other different growth from what was in the past. Um, and probably the situation about the social security system and other issues um, is um, pressing in the same direction. And the question is whether we have alternatives at all, whether we can afford to lower the pressure of growth, whether we can... Um, balance it out in a better way or whether we simply have to follow the hunt. I mean, if you continue to grow, at some point there will be no green left in Luxembourg. Yep. But is there any regulation on that? There's a lot of regulation. And this regulation is also, some people are complaining about that. Other people are quite happy about it. Then European Union is quite strong in, in preserving green spaces. And uh, for sure, that is very important and um, and is necessary. And you have the whole filter of institutional mess through which every single project has to go through. And that also delays the processes, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for bad reasons. So, um, yeah, but uh, protection is needed. Mm -hmm. So, uh, in summary then, I, I don't want to leave our audience feeling really deflated. <laughs> So I want to think it's election year. We've got firstly the municipal elections and of course then the national elections. I imagine you've spoken to politicians uh, during the course of your work. Oh, you have not. There's no. a the shaking of the head. I think maybe you should speak to some politicians. We are a public institution which is funded by the public. So we are always open for talk and for interaction. And well, sometimes we are visited by representatives, but it's pretty... It's pretty rare, actually. Do they look at the work that you provide? Um, I don't know precisely. But lies I do. guess I guess they do. But um, yeah, you can you can do and um, be silent about it. Mm -hmm. Have you any good examples of urban planning, either by the communes or at a national level? Uh, there might be there might be good examples, but the problem is um, you have you. It's, it's problematic to put them out of the context. 
So you, you have to think about what's the cause of demographics, what's the cause of economics, what will then be the impact of one single project. So, of course, um, we observe that the, um, the bikers community is much more versatile and much more articulated over the least the last three years. The which it, community? The, the bikers. Bikers. The cyclists. Th their community. The okay. This community yes. is very active and has put some pressure on politics also in the post-pandemic situation to um, do provide better infrastructure and better means of traffic safety for cyclists. And um, that is certainly something that uh, sort of political pressure that should be more proactively be um, taken up as an inspiration. Um, well, that yeah. takes lots of boxes on the sustainability goals of the country and fuel and all sorts of other stories as well. It takes a good few boxes there. So that's a good one. Yeah. Um, you mentioned one of your pet projects is looking at the Kirschberg Plateau. What do you think about how Kirschberg has developed in the time you've been viewing it, literally viewing it? Well, it's obviously getting more people to live here, which is a good thing. But you can also observe that it's a sort of vacuum in political terms. Uh, who is actually in charge of Kirchberg? It's on the grounds of the city. It's the government with the von Kirchberg. And there's also some civil society activity around that. And um, it's interesting that these people also who live here or who moved here have organized themselves and were trying to get some civil action into and to improve their neighborhoods. And there was also some reasonable attempt to respond to that, but probably not sufficient yet. And um, I think it would be good for the whole locality if that sort of vacuum would be filled. There are some, you know, on this green field over there, there are some new plans going on, quite ambitious. And that claims to be much more in inclusive as developments have been before. And obviously we need more housing on Kirchberg, maybe a little bit less office than it was planned for in order to balance it out in a better way. So to just bring this conversation to a, a conclusion, um, if I can, with the work that you do at the University of Luxembourg in urban planning, first of all, I think some politicians should read the work and uh, talk to you, but I'm not sure they'd come away with any strong conclusions. I'm trying to think of some now, but there don't, there don't seem to be any clear answers from the work that you've done. As to how I, must, I must insist uh, on the fact that we certainly have clear answers in the way how complex and, and wicked the problem actually is. And we always um, try to argue for, please uh, beware of the context before going for solutions. And please look at implementation processes. Because if you, if you try to fabricate a plan for 10 years, That's one thing, but then you have to implement it and then you have to look at what is the real impact. So, mm -hmm. um, yes, I must insist there are clear answers, but these answers are not that you, you follow a cherry picking approach and you can easily get some products that you fill in in a rather complex and maybe also increasingly contested environment. That's hardly possible. It does seem that the underlying question for everything, however, is whether or not Luxembourg should continue to grow. Maybe at least in what extent, yes. Well, are you looking forward to the coronation tomorrow? Um, to some extent, yes. 
<laughs> you I, I really, really need to stand for local I, elections. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm not allowed to uh, give any other answer, but no, yes, of course. You are allowed to give any answer you wish. <laughs> As we mentioned right at the top with Sasha, we need some real and honest news in Luxembourg. We need to be an open society. We only rank 20th, apparently. So here you have your big chance to help us work up the ladder of being open and honest. I'm very happy with my job at university. So thank you for the invite, <laughs> but uh, I might not go for that. Well, um, Professor Hesse, it's wonderful to have you on the show. Thanks and, for the invitation. And I wish you luck with the complex problem that you have set out. Thank you so much, Ambassador Fleur, for being here with us, with, of course, Lara in the corner taking wonderful photos. And Dr. Barkat, I know you've got a, a busy afternoon ahead to prepare everything for the celebrations tomorrow. And Louise, wonderful to see you as always. Sasha, have you any final thoughts? Well, I just wanted to say we also had a, a guest on the show during the week um, who's the head of news gathering at Ina. And um, he was saying, of course, international interest in the coronation that Brits always underestimate how much um, interest there is abroad. So I'm sure uh, tomorrow I'm sure there will be television crews and, and, you know, there is a worldwide audience for it, isn't there? Yeah, the viewing figures, that will be an interesting one for the, the pomp and ceremony, as we say. Yeah, absolutely. Louise, have you any final thoughts? No, just if you would like to join the British Luxembourg Society tomorrow. And don't forget, we have Lady Hale, the most senior British um, female judge. And she will be giving us a Winston Churchill Memorial Lecture on the 20th of November. So a very good reason to join the British Luxembourg Society tomorrow. And as you said, it's a very open and inclusive society and it's open to all. I think you said about 40% Luxembourgish, uh, about 40% British and 20% other international thank you all so much it's been a great pleasure to have you with me in the studio